Hey, everybody. Welcome to Hints and Guesses, my podcast. This is Kent Dobson. Thanks for tuning in today. Thanks for listening. Special thanks to my Patreon supporters for making this happen each month. And it's good to be back behind the mic. I just got back from a trip to Yellowstone, a family trip. Yellowstone and the Tetons, what a gift. I'm going to talk a bit about that today in, in a podcast I'm calling You Cannot Mock the Stars. And um, yeah, so yeah, it's good to be back. And, and it was, um, it's taken me a little while to, I don't know, to, to get clear about what I want to say in this, in this podcast. And I think Yellowstone in, in some respects changed my current present relationship to my own life and to what's important as wild places tend to do. So I want to talk a bit about that. So it's like, I've been trying to find my bearings a little bit. And this has also been happening in my writing too. I, I'm about 80,000 words into a new book. And, um, earlier this summer, I, (laughs) some, it's, it's like it closed down and I had this feeling like, no, um, and sometimes I can sort of fight it. I can, you know, push through. And, but this was different. I thought, mm, I'm just going to let it go for a little bit. And, and I had to sort of, I almost said, pick up my pen. <laughs> what I mean is start a new Word document. And it was like I had to begin again. And um, I don't know, when the, when the fire goes out of something, when the creative fire, the eros, the vitality goes out of something, it's like that, that time period is something worth paying attention to. <laughs> and, and it requires a certain amount of patience in my experience, because I think we have clever ways of, um, you know, cranking that back on, on again and um, overpowering or overcoming the dry periods. But in my view, the dry periods have their own gift. And I really, it's been kind of an interesting summer. I haven't felt like reading much. And that, that is unusual for me. Usually I'm reading four or five books at a time. And, and I don't know. I, and same with podcasts. I, there are a few voices that I listen to regularly. And, and I was like, no, it wasn't even that I decided no or had some like morally virtuous or spiritually enlightened, well, you know, I'm going to listen to the spirit instead or, or the mystery. And it just, there was a certain no, like now was not the time. And, um, and so just now I'm, I'm, I feel like, okay, here's, here's something, here's a way of, of entering again, the conversation. And, um, so that's kind of, that's kind of where I am right now. And also some, I, I broke some, podcasting equipment that I had to get fixed. So that was like, I don't know, part of the equation of, of hitting the pause button for a little while. So it's fixed and and here I am. And, um, I want to start today with a quotation from Abraham Heschel and Heschel is a rabbi, was a rabbi. I think he died in the 1970s. If I'm not mistaken, he was the, besides Chaim Potok, was the most, well, I should, I can still say almost unequivocally, he's been the most important 
sort of Jewish voice in my life. I've been reading him for a long time, and I still occasionally read uh, or reread, I should say, some of the books that I have of his. And um, he was my one of my first rabbis, so to speak. Uh, and anyway, so if you don't know who Heschel is, that's like a, a really brief description. He's sort of like the a rabbi philosopher, mystic, Hasidic sage, all sort of mixed into one. So um, I'm gonna I want to base today's talk on on a quotation of his. For, but I just uh, remembered I want to do a little advertising here. I've got a class coming starting at the end of September, which I'm calling Iron John and the Sacred Masculine, and I made a podcast. The last podcast I made was about the very first section of the book Iron John. Uh, Iron John is a myth that Robert Bly has a has a book on of the same title, Iron John. And oh man, uh, I've read Iron John at least five times. I'm reading it again. There are some really really important things that Robert Bly is revealing and riffing on and challenging that I think are really poignant for the cultural landscape we find ourselves in right now, even though this book came out in the 1980s, long before I, you know, I was ever into this kind of stuff and I was just a kid. Um, but his contribution to the question of what do we mean by the masculine? What do we mean by what I call the sacred masculine? And what is it, what is its relationship to the sacred feminine? And what is the relationship between gender and, um, the masculine and feminine energies that are part of the psyche and and how do we talk about um masculinity now it's it's almost like we're in a freeze mode <laughs> that's the way it feels it's like we can't we can't run and um we we can't fight we're sort of frozen and the big caricatures right now that are happening in our culture the the extremes we could, we could say which is one, we need to stick to old stereotypes and images on the, on the one extreme. On the other extreme, things like there's no such thing as gender, or no such thing as masculinity, or, or all masculinity is toxic, or things like that. The, these are the, this is what takes up the airwaves, but that doesn't help people. And so I'm doing a class, a nine-month class that I'm calling Iron John and the Sacred Masculine. And I only mentioned it on one podcast. I haven't even really advertised it. I haven't put it on social media or anything, and it's almost full. So I'm saying if this interests you and you want to spend nine months, we're going to gather once a month on Sundays. We're going to read. We're going to study. There's going to be some teaching. There's going to be some... Um, uh, it'll be a place... It's a small group, a small-ish group, and it'll be a place where we can open up and talk about some of these things. Um, I already have the question, is it for men only? At this point, it is, yes. Um, although I'm already sort of dreaming up a sacred feminine, sacred masculine course down the road. Um, but I think because right away I had a uh, interest from from men only, I think I'll keep it that way. So uh, that that's by way of advertising. Just go to my website, kentopson.com. You'll see it right on the homepage. Click on it. There is an application questionnaire on there. Please look at the questions. I think it will help you even know, is this something I want to do? Um, so look at the questions, um, and I'd love to see you there if you can make it work. If you can't make all of the sessions work, because it's over the course of many months, that's okay. I record each of them. If you miss one or two, that's okay. Uh, you can catch up um, online, because the whole class will take place on Zoom. So um, looking further down the road, 
I have an Israel trip planned in March, and the primary group is a church in Denver, Denver um, Community Church. I've taught there many times. My friend Michael's the pastor there, and I think this is their th- their fourth, third or fourth Israel trip. Um, we do them every couple years, and I'm very excited to be taking another group from Denver Community Church, and it's also open to the public, so a few people have already expressed interest. Of course, we're watching the COVID stuff, but it still seems uh, likely that the trip will happen. But now's the time, if you're interested, to sign up. So you can also find um, a place to send me an email on my website. If that interests you at all, I'll send you all the details. And if, if a pilgrimage, a kind of spiritual, religious, historical, biblical, um, contemporary uh, pilgrimage is something that you uh, can swing right now or you feel um, attracted to in some way, let me know. That's it for what's happening, at least coming down the pipe. Um, I should, I, I'm, <laughs> I just thought of more. I do regularly teach at C3. This is a small spiritual community in Grand Haven, Michigan, and you can always find my stuff online there, c3westmichigan.org or on Facebook. We also put all of our stuff up. If uh, you've never checked out C3, it's probably worth doing. And um, and I also have got a couple teachings coming for East Lake in Seattle, which I've also been teaching at, um, you know, infrequently. But uh, over the last few years, I have a relationship with them, and so I've got a couple teachings coming um, for them. So you can check check out my stuff for East Lake at the end of this month. Okay, that's it for the much more important stuff. Here's the quote from Heschel, part of it. I'll probably break it down into several sections here. We can never sneer at the stars, mock the dawn, or scoff at the totality of being. I was talking with my wife the other day, and I was telling her I was struggling to come out with a podcast, and and I wanted to say something about our time in Yellowstone and and how it sort of challenged my own relationship with how I was living my life. And and she had just come across this quotation from Heschel. She said, what about the mock the stars quote? And I looked it up and um, sure enough, yeah, there's, there's a resonance here. There's a, a tuning fork has been struck and something is ringing. We can never sneer at the stars, mock the dawn or scoff or scoff at the totality of being. I think uh, sleeping outside and having no internet access and being subjected, and I mean that in the best possible sense, to the rhythms of the day, the times of day, the sunrise and the sunset and the moonrise and the setting of the moon and the stars and the weather and the, the smoke and the haze and the clarity and the coldness of a mountain stream and a mountain uh, lake and talk about the the totality of certain amazing beings like the bison and elk and I had a close encounter with a bear and with a grizzly bear and we saw a black bear too from a little bit further away you know, what, what is there to mock? When the sun comes up, what is there to make fun of? When the stars come out and 
I mean, like sort of the greatest and worst thing about camping is having to pee in the middle of the night. Uh, when I was uh, 19, I um, went to Yellowstone with my buddy Derek, and we got a backcountry pass, and I had a couple of, I guess I would call them numinous uh, experiences on that trip that sort of shook me up on the existential level. I, I wouldn't have said that at the time, numinous and existential. I just would have said that was amazing or I don't know what to say. And one of them was a close encounter with a, with a herd of bison that were running. And uh, the other was I got up to pee in the middle of the night, way in the back country, you know, so deep that you're, you know, afraid to get out of your tent, which is a funny thing because you're in a, a tent. <laughs> it's like this measure of protection that's really just an illusion between me and the what is, what's real, nature, uh, the wild. And I got up to pee in the middle of the night, and it's like um, standing beneath the stars like that at whatever elevation, maybe seven, 8,000 feet and with zero light pollution and no clouds and no moon. It's like something pinned me to the ground is the, the way it felt. The numinous and the mysterious and just the, the totality of being just pinned me to the ground. And it's when something like that happens, it's, it affects, I think, what we could call in a fancy way our consciousness, our ego, who we think we are. Um, it, it makes us small in, in the good way. It levels us. And it's funny because I'm not even like trying to make too much of this experience when I was 19. It's just, it's, it's just present in my awareness. It's never left me. And in, sometimes I wonder if I'm even seeking that again. I mean, if, if, if part of us isn't just wandering, awaiting that kind of piercing of the mystery. And of course, it came as a total surprise. And as I would say, all of the numinous counters, by the way, numinous is a word I'm stealing from Jung. Jung is stealing it from Latin. <laughs> uh, Newman means to wink, which I, I just love. Like, it's like the universe winks at you. And um, anyway, I think what I was going to say is all of my numinous encounters came in moments like that where I wasn't trying. I wasn't pious, I wasn't praying, I wasn't meditating, I wasn't reflecting on, you know, some amazing quotation or some scripture passage or some Buddhist koan or just, I just had to pee in the middle of the night and I was annoyed. And, um, and let me read the quote again. We can never sneer at the stars or mock the dawn or scoff at the totality of being. I'll just keep reading. Sublime grandeur evokes unhesitating, unflinching awe or wonder, we could add, awe. Away from the immense, cloistered in our own concepts, when we're away from the immense, 
cloistered in our own concepts, we may scorn and revile everything. And this is the part that I think just this week really ran through me. And, you know, I I was going to use an old-fashioned Baptist word, which I think is the most appropriate word, convicted, convicted me. You know, I can get cloistered in my own concepts, even though I think, you know, well, my concepts are better than other people's concepts, (laughs) as we all tend to think. Uh, Away from the immense, away from the, a moonlit, field of daisies or um, the quiet of our own uh, lawn at in the dawn sunrise. When we're closer to our own concepts, we may scorn and revile everything. And God, I cannot think of a more damning um, description of our culture right now reviling everything, scorning, mocking, pointing the finger at everything, and both sides, if there's even such a thing. I'm, I'm over red and blue, liberal, conservative. I just, it feels dead to me right now. It feels meaningless to me right now. Yet, it, the divisions are the only thing that gets amplified and the thing that passes is what we call culture, media, computer, (laughs) screens, news, radio, just divide everything up and mock everything that isn't your own cloistered concept. Here I am in my precious ideas and, and I know what's going on and I'm in the camp that fill in the blank and everything else gets mocked. That's the world of Twitter. And I, I know it's, it could be really easy for me to like get on this little high horse to be anti-social media and stuff. And, and sometimes I do, do do that. And I think it, it absolutely should be critiqued. Um, but what I'm asking right now is what does it do to the human spirit? What does it do to our relationship to the immense here in the Heschel quote? When we think that is all that matters, what camp I'm in and what camp you're in and what's available for me, right? What's available to me right now to mock the antidote to this kind of poison, because that's what I think it is, is a field, a juniper tree, a bison, (laughs) and something far closer to home. I saw a worm on the sidewalk today. Apparently, if St. Francis was known, I just thought of this now, but taking worms and moving them out of the the footpath. (laughs) Here you go, little... Worm. That's someone who's, who's in relationship with the wild and with the immense. Um, but 
but right now it, it feels energetically attractive to sit in the seat of mockers. That's a line from the Psalms. And that's what pays bills, you know? That's how people get followings. That's how... Um, that's what makes culture go round right now. Who can I mock and who can I deride? All I'm saying is it's bad for the human spirit. It's bad for the soul. And the antidote is, are the stars. And, and it's not just wild places. I mean, um, I feel lucky because I am. I'm, I'm very lucky. lucky. I've also tried to organize my life in such a way where I can get out to wild places from time to time, but I still consider it a privilege. I, I feel lucky that I'm able to do that. Um, but the wild, what's unmockable is nearby. It's close at hand. And so part of what happened to me just while I was gone for a couple of weeks traveling around was I stopped listening to everything I was used to listening to. And, and without even trying, you know, you start to listen to the song of the forest, the, the symphony of just the wild world as it is, as it unfolds, like the way the voices of the forest break open at dawn and fall silent and at dusk and the way the trout feed during the hatches and um, the way the winds shift in the day and it's a, it's a song, it's, it's a dream of the earth itself that is intoxicating, that we're actually deeply embedded in. We too, as human beings, as two-legged you know, creatures, are also part of the dream of the earth and belong as much as the bison. And um, I, 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 for some reason, I feel like that's important to say because I think a lot of people in, in, in environmental movements there's a kind of mockery and division of even being human because you look around and, you, and it's, it's beyond question that human beings cause harm and suffering to the land, to the earth, to the water, to the skies, to the air quality. Um, we have, um, we've had a, a difficult and con contemptuous at times relationship with, with the earth. And that has to be called out. But what I'm unwilling to say is that we don't belong or that somehow human beings are some sort of sick cancer on the earth. And if the earth was just freed of us, um, we would go back to the Garden of Eden. And I, I just say, mm, not, that's not going to happen, first of all, barring some cataclysmic event by, that is the random acts of nature. Um, but also, it's not even something worth hoping for. What we hope for is... is is awakening. And what I'm suggesting is awakening to a deeper relationship with your own life and what to what really matters. Go stand under a starlit sky because you can't mock it. You can't sneer at it. Try it. <laughs> Make fun of the stars and, and see how silly and out of place it's going to make you feel. Go find out. Um, 
or as the, the quote ends here, but standing between earth and sky, we are silenced by the sight. Standing between earth and sky, we are silenced by the sight. And and I, I guess part of what I'm saying here is just coming off a trip like this, I feel silenced and I'm just going to take it. Yeah, okay, enough words. Uh, and yeah, enough words. So maybe part of what I'm trying to say today is What's needed more than anything else is a relationship with the sublime, with sublime grandeur, which is still available to us around every corner in the way the dew lights up a spider web. I mean, you don't have to go to, to a place like Yellowstone, um, but again, I'll say it more clearly, perhaps what's needed more than anything else is a relationship with the sublime, an experience of awe. Just to walk around in the world open enough to get that open enough to to the to the possibility that you too might be pinned to the ground by some surprise. I'd like to walk around that open to the mystery of life, uh, to be leveled in the, in the best possible way. The, what I'm talking about here, to say it again, is that cynicism is, is a kind of uh, poisonous currency right now. It's the thing we trade in. And, or maybe I could say the, I was going to say the real ep- epidemic. I'm not putting down COVID, but I'll just say it for a rhetorical effect here. The real ep- epidemic is the contagious nature of this kind of deep cynicism, followed by mockery and sneering. Um, so maybe you, you get what I'm saying here. You know, the kind of world that says, be afraid of everything, especially death. Be afraid of illness, especially the kind you can't see. Be afraid of your neighbors. Mistrust everyone. Mistrust the news. Mistrust the government. Mistrust the CDC. Um, don't, don't trust your parents. Don't trust your children. Trust is the, the thing that's in question. Scoff at other ways of being. Mock the way other people live their life deeply and without, um, without any shame. Feel no embarrassment about, about uh, pointing out the errors of other people. Um, it's your duty. It's your responsibility. Uh, play the games of purity culture. My friend Peter Rollins says that all religion is rooted in, in purity games, <laughs> purity codes. Yes, uh, Peter Rollins that I had on the podcast a couple podcasts ago. Um, and I don't know if I agree 100%. I mean, speaking of the origins of religion, Heschel says the origin of religion is awe. And I agree with Heschel. <laughs> 
maybe we could say, maybe we could clarify and say the origin of, of religious experience of the numinous of, of encounter with mystery is awe. And, and that gave birth to what we might call religion, which is a, sort, a certain orientation. That's what I mean by religion, a certain orientation toward the sacred, toward the numinous and toward the mystery. Um, but it gets codified. So uh, Rollins has a point, which is something like... Um, Purity games are the codification of this and who's pure and who's not pure. And that's much of the, the Old Testament, you know, the pure clothes, impure clothes. You know, if you touch something impure, do these five things. And if you're impure, you can't do this. If you're pure, you can do this. And, um, and on and on and on it goes in, in vast detail. And, I mean, there are all kinds of reasons for that. I'm not going to go into detail. Um, but... That has never left us. And now it's like, who's pure and who's not in terms of worldview? And, and, and the vaccine, those who have it and those who don't, this is, it's become a kind of new purity code. And, and see, I've got my card and it proves that I'm, you know, fill in the blank. Or, or I don't have my card and that proves that I'm actually a one, that, one that's pure and I haven't defiled my body with, you know, uh, experimental, you know, whatever, drugs. And you can see that, the, that it's the game that's the problem. I mean, we're all going to die. We know that. And we're going to die of, of, of something that's going to kill us. <laughs> and, um, and as much as I am for advancements in science and technology, what a great gift to be alive in the 21st century. None of us are going to get out of this alive. And, and that's actually, that brings us a little closer toward the immense. What's what you cannot mock, which is impermanence, the impermanence of life. But anyway, in a culture that mistrusts and is afraid and plays purity games and loves to mock everything, especially the past, you know, tear it all down. So-and-so didn't have the right thoughts. So-and-so didn't have the right ideas. So-and-so wrote in the wrong way. So-and-so used the wrong grammar. So-and-so's used the wrong language. So-and-so was the wrong kind of race and therefore can't say anything about this or that, or this person is the right kind of race, and, and on and on and on it goes. And it never stops, and it's contagious. It's poisonous, is what I'd like to suggest to the human spirit. Now, I'm not against critique. I spend, if you've listened to my podcast, I spend a fair amount of time critiquing religion and history and, and, you know, and politics and political figures. I mean, critique, I think, is just an essential part of cleaning the lens. But it's the poisonous mockery of everything that, that, well, poisons the well, we could say. And then you end up drawing only from what is dangerous and, and sickens everyone. And the constant categorization and labeling of, of everyone is an example of that. And the, the strange... Um, there used to be the caste system, you know, there still is in India. And, and, but now it's, there is a caste system, but um, it depends on who, who the authority is that's, that's lining up all of the labels and saying pure, impure, good, bad, worse. You know, it's, it's contagious right now. So how do we get out of it? I'm just saying, I'm just suggesting go outside. That's part of what I'm suggesting, get close to the immense, the numinous, the stars, um, go stand near what you, what you cannot mock.
I, I've got a few, a couple of other Heschel quotes, and then I'm gonna, I'm gonna end. Awe is the intuition for the dignity of all things. Awe is an intuition for the dignity of all things. Wonder, I'm going to change it a bit, is an intuition. It's a, it's a guess, a hint, a guess, a clue for the dignity of all things. Like when you're talking with someone that you deeply disagree with and something taps you on the shoulder and says, this is a human being. That's the beginning of the possibility of of awe as an intuition. Wait a minute. This human being or this mountain stream or this hillside there's a, has a kind of dignity in its own being. Awe is an intuition for the dignity of all things, a realization that things not only are what they are, but also Stand, however remotely, for something supreme. Not only is it the realization that things are what they are, but also stand, however remotely, for something supreme. Forfeit your sense of all, Heschel says. Forfeit your sense of all. Let your concept diminish your ability to revere, and the universe becomes a marketplace for you. Again, I, I mean, who was this person? Heschel. What insight? When we no longer have a relationship with wonder, with awe, with the dignity of all things, and we forfeit this sense of awe, and we let our own concepts um, diminish our ability to revere, or I'll use some of my language, to see the world as sacred, then the universe becomes a marketplace, a, a, a collection of objects for our, our use. And I mean, I dare you to disagree with this. I mean, it, it, it struck me as um, one of the major concerns upon COVID, which is an of a natural virus is nature doing nature's thing. I don't know where it started. I'm not making any claims there. Who knows? But it's going the course. It's going to run its course in as as a part of just the totality of being of reality itself that viruses happen. We could say, like in that, like in Forrest Gump, shit happens. You know, um, viruses happen, and um, but one of the number one concerns was how everything was, how it was going to affect the, the economy. And I'm not anti-economy, you know, I'm, um, I'm over these kind of like, I don't know what you would call them, utopian ideals that we can just get rid of capitalism and live in this kind of like trade, um, you know, bartering system. And, you know, uh, I, you know, I'm not a, maybe the thing to say about capitalism and it's not my area of expertise is that, um, it's good and it's bad, you know, that's what we could say. It's caused a lot of harm to a lot of uh, people on the planet, but it's also, I mean, even according to the UN, it's it's been a contributing factor to bringing about a billion people out of poverty in the last 25 years. And that's just like, that's, 
out of abject poverty, we could say. And that's surprising. So it's complex. That's what we would say. But anyway, what's my point is that everything's marketplace, you know, um, and that's the first kind of thing we measure. I'm going to say something controversial for a second. And at least I, th I think it's controversial. So um, I follow the women's um, U.S. national team and, and huge fan, I'm a huge fan of soccer. And, and of course, the women's national team has done probably more for um, women's soccer than, than, than anyone else in the world, really. And what a gift. And they've been, you know, fighting for equal pay. And, you know, my first, you know, sort of gut response is, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, equal pay. That's right. Um, the men's soccer team gets paid more. So why is the system set up this way? And and who decided it was this way? And, and it's, of course, a very complex debate. But here's, here's the question I have. What measure of value are we using? And it's still the economy. It's the almighty economy. Maybe you've heard me quote James Hillman before. He says, there's such thing as monotheism. There is only one God, and it's called the economy. And, I mean, he's, you know, poking around in this very same stuff uh, in a universe that is stripped of awe. A worldview that is stripped of all, we have nothing left, left but to turn everything into its market value. And so that's how we're determining the worth of human beings. I just want you to hear me say that. I'm not against equal pay. I'm saying, what measure are we using to, to, um, to name the worth of a human being? And their artistic skill in this, I mean, it's like physical, artistic, it's hard to know exactly what's happening with sports, but the only measure we use is the almighty dollar. There's not another one that we're even talking about. And I think, okay, fine, after equal pay is done and the courts decide or whatever, and I, and I think the system should be more fair, then what? What about the worth of a human being? It doesn't really tell you all that much. So what I'm saying is that mar even words like sustainability, that's a market term. I'm all about sustainability and this business is sustainable, but what in what sense? Most of the time they mean we have solar panels up and um, we're sustainable in our cost kind of risk cost e equation. Again, I'm not against businesses <laughs> being more environmentally friendly, but what are the other costs involved when, when the dollar is the only thing that we're worshiping? Anyway, I'm just, I don't want to go into too much detail here, but um, I hope you at least hear uh, what I'm talking about. Here's what, well, I'll give you one more example, just a really brief one. I remember um, when Trump was saying, you know, look how awesome I'm doing as president. Just check your 401ks. And I thought to myself, first of all, who has a 401k? And second of all, that's the, that's the measurement we're going to use, the, the, uh, a healthy, robust, life-giving culture is reduced to a number on a screen that goes up and down based on forces that it's even questionable that the president has any say over. Just check the numbers. See, that's a universe that uh, has forfeited its sense of awe and, and diminished our our ability to revere and then everything is just a marketplace for us so let's end with the beginning of the heschel quote 
We can never sneer at the stars, mock the dawn, or scoff at the totality of being. Sublime grandeur evokes unhesitating, unflinching awe. Away from the immense, cloistered in our own concepts, we may scorn and revile everything, but standing between earth and sky, we are silenced by the sight.